Hi, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Just one secret, right? This is there's only Follow one secret. Follow the story. law of Matt <laughs> is the secret. That's the know only his secret. ways. Bow to him. Kneel before Zod. Uh, yes, so you I... remember that, that scene in, in, in Superman 2? He goes like, kneel before Zod! And then like right before it cuts away, he just goes, Zod! And then it cuts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the guy, the Karen Stamp or whoever it is, just, just like yells out, ah! <laughs> like, right before, like the camera's got that. I'm shutting this camera down. I was like, let me get one more word in. I showed, I showed that movie to my daughter, and my daughter is very emotionally mature, and she enjoyed the movie. But then she said, Daddy, it was a little deathy for me. <laughs> she, she didn't like how many people Zod killed, which it's true. Probably she was not long I, enough I for me to show her that movie. Her, yeah. But the other problem is it did have a sex scene, which I was the first time yeah. I ever had to breeze over a sex scene with her, where, uh, you know, like he gives up his Superman powers and then it cuts to a scene, a great scene. It cuts to Clark Kent and Lois Lane naked on this huge silver pillow. <laughs> and uh, they're post-coitus. But okay. um, it, it was the first time where we ever got to a sex scene, and she was like, what just happened? All right. Okay, so here is the story. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Secrets of Story podcast. So today, we are going to do something special. We're going to have our first ever guest co-host. Uh, it's once again going to be me and James, but we're going to then do a Skype call. So you're going to be hearing some different audio quality when we're going to switch over here to a Skype call that the two of us just recorded with Jonathan Oxier who is an acclaimed novelist. Right now, we're going to go ahead and cut to that tape that we just recorded with us talking to Jonathan Oxier. And we're going to be talking about the subject of POV in prose. So I'm not going to do another test, test, one, two, three. I've done it with both of you earlier today. We're just going to take our you word for it. You haven't done it with it. me. I did do it with you. You did test, test, one, two, three? Yeah, but this earlier today around noon. <laughs> okay. This uh, Hi, guys. My name is Jonathan Oxier. He's going to introduce me as a guest, but I do need to point out that my main interest is uh, going to be watching these two go at each other because I find that my loyalties are constantly switching, and presently from that exchange, uh, they lie with James firmly. <laughs> well, I guess say originally, I'm not going to call you out, but originally I wanted to have you on the show because there was an opinion that you had that James and I both disagreed with, and we, we, James and I were in agreement, and you were on the other side, and I said, let's bring in our very first ever guest of the Secrets of Story podcast, claim novelist Jonathan Auxier, and let's bring him in, and that way he can have an unpopular opinion, and James and I can team up together and share a popular opinion, and uh, finally be united after four contentious episodes. But then you did not want to, you uh, did not want to air an unpopular opinion on the airways, and you said, let's talk about something else. And we wound up choosing a topic that, of course, James and I disagree on. So uh, my dream of being united with James has been dashed. But let that be, like, Jonathan's third time on the podcast room to say something unpopular. You need to get, like, people on his side first. Yes. Fair enough. The problem is I'm, I'm quite anxious about uh, going after working artists, even when I think th their work was... Uh, re received and, and adored inappropriately. So, so that's why you don't mind going after us. Uh, I'm not going after what you guys have written. This isn't. This isn't. I'm not going to sit here and like tear up Order the Oddfish or something. <laughs> like we're talking. We're talking about opinions. But I'm not. Yeah, I have no interest in in uh, taking shots at the lives of, of working writers. 
Okay. Welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. This is podcast number five. We have our first ever special guest. We have acclaimed novelist Jonathan Oxier is here. Today, we are going to talk about, well, first we're going to go ahead and say our hellos. Then we're going to talk about prose, which is something that we have not exactly covered yet. And I had some opinions about prose recently on the blog that James, of course, disagreed with and that Jonathan jumped in to defend me a little bit. And so we decided to have him on to talk about that. Uh, there's even more to that. Uh, I made the mistake. I do not ever write comments, but I wrote a comment on your blog and then people reacted to it and I hated that feeling. And I actually emailed James privately and said at some point we can have a great civil discussion about this away from the internet. <laughs> and apparently uh, by away from the internet I meant recording it in audio <laughs> and then posting it on the internet. <laughs> Hi everybody, by the way. Hi. I'm to be here. I'm a big fan of these two people. Yes, we're big fans of you as well. So yes, Jonathan, Jonathan is the author of Peter Nimble and His Fantastic Eyes. Is that, is that, is that the title? That is the title. Uh, he is uh, the author of The Night Gardener. He is the author, author of uh, Sophie Choir and how does it go? Sophie Choir and the Last Story Guard. Matt and the is last great at research. Story Guard. Great at making guests feel valued <laughs> and like he cares about their work. Um just an all-around class act method. And James is, of course, the author of the novel Order of Oddfish. I am the author of The Storytelling Guide, which is uh, shares a name with this podcast, The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers, a book that just recently entered the bestseller list. It was one of the top 20 nonfiction bestsellers in the country, according to Amazon.com. So thank Bravo. you all for that. Uh, thank you all for anyone who picked up a copy and helped make that possible. Okay, so so let's get into this, guys. Get into the nitty-gritty. Get into the muck and the mire. It seemed like the uh, the match that started this little fire was a piece Matt did talking about POV, where he basically said it's a mistake to switch POV within uh, scenes. Yes, let me go, um, and let me Once go you're ahead. in a scene... Let me go ahead and read please. my piece. Okay, so when you're writing prose from a first-person point of view, it's easy to maintain identification. Your hero can only see what he can see, only hear what he can hear, only think what he can think. When you're writing omniscient third-person, on the other hand, you're free to jump from head-to-head, -head, from POV to POV. But a lot of fiction is written from a limited third-person POV, which splits the difference. The narrative voice can theoretically go anywhere because you're merely on the hero's shoulder and not stuck in his head, but practically, in order for this sort of voice to work, you have to agree to limit yourself just as much as you would if you were in first-person. You're nailed down on that shoulder and you're unable to move. Most limited third person is essentially the same as first person. The narrative voice is even privy to the hero's thoughts, despite referring to the hero as he slash she. The key to maintaining this sort of privileged access is that you have to be privy to your hero's thoughts and only your hero's thoughts. It's tempting to cheat. In one book, a hero was talking to a social worker, and it described something the social worker saw in the hero's eyes. So most of the scene had been from the hero's point of view. He had to meet with this social worker, he didn't like it, he couldn't stand her, etc. Then we have a POV break, and suddenly we're in her head for just a moment. She had seen that kind of look before. This is a no-no. That's flirting with entering the social worker's head, which would break our full identification with the hero. Instead, you have to say, from the hero's point of view, he saw that the social worker had an I-know-what-you're-going-through face. That's the hero's POV. That's all the hero can know of the mind of the social worker, what he can see. So, and it's funny, since I wrote this piece, this week, this book finally came out, and it got a star in Publishers Weekly, uh, the <laughs> book that I, uh, that I had given notes on. So that's that. That was I felt I felt somewhat gratified that uh, 
even though they, I have not. Did I have, they fix the line? I have. I don't know. I haven't gotten the book. I haven't read it. I. I don't know if they. Uh, I would be fascinated to know if they did. Anyway, James, what was your problem with the POV piece that I just read? Well, number one, I think the line he saw that the social worker had an "I know what you're going through" face is a ter- it's terrible prose. Um, like he saw that. You know anything that, that kind of like like says, and I think this is mentioned in the comments. Uh, somebody's like, he saw that blah blah blah. She heard that blah blah blah. Just give me what he sees. Just give right. me what she hears. Right. Uh, um, you wouldn't actually write. He saw the social worker. You that's would write, exactly what you told him to write. You know what I meant, James. Okay, so um, you have to say that with, he saw that, but you don't actually have to say <laughs> he saw that. You could just say the social worker had a blank. Right. Paper. Okay. So there's a lot of different ways to write. Have you ever read Dune? Uh, no, I've never read Dune. I've okay. always meant to. In the first chapter of Dune, we're very deeply in Paul Atreides' head, and then his mom comes in, and then suddenly we're in her head. And then we're back in Paul Atreides' head. Like, literally, the things that they're thinking, the things that they're thinking, like, smelling, hearing, like, and then we're in, in the mother, the woman who comes in to torture Paul, we're in her head, and think exactly what she's saying. And Frank Herbert was able to pull it all off beautifully, and you see exactly how they're all scheming against each other, and how the like, and and how everybody's moving their chess pieces around that board, and it works beautifully. Um, and so I don't think it's necessarily verboten to uh, to jump out of somebody's head and into somebody else's head in the middle of a scene, because I've seen it done in a classic piece of science fiction. Well, I you know I may not have read Dune, but I have read a little book called War and Peace, and War and Peace uh, does. The exact same thing. High roaded. <laughs> it uh, it does the exact same thing, and it does it really beautifully. There's there's a great moment in War and Peace where you know we're on a battlefield, we're on Austerlitz or whatever, one of the big Napoleonic battles, and we're jumping around from head to head, and we'll suddenly be in one soldier's head on one side, and we'll be intensely in his head, and then intensely in the head of a soldier on the other side, and then we stop off very briefly inside the horse. And we get inside the head of the horse as we, we suddenly deeply feel for what the horse is feeling and hearing and seeing. And then we jump back out and we do something else. So, no, it, it absolutely can work. And I said so in the piece. I said that, you know, if you're writing omniscient third person, you're free to jump from head to head, POV to POV. But if you're writing a book where 99% of the book is limited third person from one person's point of view then you need to stick there and you can't, you know, flirt with going into somebody else's head, which is what I was saying. And that's what I'm reading. I'm not writing these posts as a novelist. I'm writing these posts as a novel reader, as someone who is now a professional novel reader. And I'm telling you what I, as a reader of novels, want to see and don't want to see. Um, can, can I? You could do, yeah. Sorry, let me jump in here because I think this is very interesting. And I think you guys are, as you often are, I love hearing you guys argue. I think you guys are both right almost all the time, uh, except when you're not. But uh, in this case, I think you guys are in many ways both right. And that was one of the things that frustrated me because I I noticed these blog posts and I even ventured to comment and regretted it. But um, (laughs) everyone was right, but no one was hearing each other. A lot of the attacks that I was seeing going on on Matt's piece were ignoring the fact that Matt was talking very specifically about breaking POV within scenes. And all the exceptions that people were talking about were stories that weren't necessarily shifting POV within single scenes. And I know, James, you had a couple. Very, very smartly, you talked about Charlotte's Web. I don't know how recently you've read it. I have read that book to death. I teach it every semester in a graduate course. And I will tell you right now that once you get halfway through the book, those little moments when he flits into Fern's perspective are terrible and they're problematic to the reading experience and they're very ham-fisted. I, I believe that firmly. But ham-fisted? More to the point, ham-fisted. <laughs> um, but more to the point, 
but the point being basically there is a moment where you want this broad sweeping scope where you're right. kind of creating an environment and an overall sense of tone and a kind of a, a sense of social fabric but most of a story is not that moment and i think at the core of what matt's advice was basically when you are in a moment where you need people to be uniquely invested in the experience of usually a single character those breaks in pov even if they're small even if they're one line are incredibly, in very subtle and sophistic, sophisticated ways, detrimental to the reader's ability to identify with what's going on with the protagonist. I think that's sound advice. I think it's phenomenal advice. I know you can point to a million uh, kind of examples in literature where that is broken. You know, I do laugh because I think anytime you're bringing up Sound and Fury or Ulysses as an example of like, like that to me is insane because these are people who broke the mold and they're defined by the fact they broke the mold. And, uh, and I don't think that's, I don't think they're helpful. I don't think those are instructive authors to most people with the types of stories they're telling. Basically what I'm saying is if you're trying to do this, then here's how you do it. And I'm not saying, you know, like you should always try to do this. I'm saying that, you know, if you're using women in third person in order to build identification and then you occasionally break it, that that is going to hurt your goal of using women in third person to build identification. I'm not saying that, hey, idiot, you're not trying to use women in third person to build identification. You should do that. You're doing it wrong. That's not what writing is. You know, you're not allowed to be James Joyce. You're not allowed to be William Faulkner. I'm not saying that. As you well know, I'm not saying. John well, okay, here's, here's, here's a stone cold classic, The Golden Compass. The first chapter is from Lyra's limited point of view. And then either the second or third chapter, it's it refers to her as if we haven't been in her head. So, oh, she was a greedy young savage. It, it's probably like that. And then it goes on for a bit, and we're really f firmly with her until suddenly she's off stage and there's just two old men talking before a fire and about her. And then we're back into the thing, and then it goes on for a while. And then when they visit the witches... Um, for the first time, she's out playing with a broom, and then she's off stage, and people are talking about her again. And I think those things work because they 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 establish some things that we need to know about the broader world. That things that she can't know, we sh that we shouldn't be on her shoulder when she finds when we know about them. So that it kind of sets up these things. And I think Golden Compass is almost flawless. And, and I think those things are. I think Philip Pullman knows what he's doing, and when when he makes those choices to break her limited third point of view and bring in some people to talk about her a little bit. Can I jump in with yeah. that? Because that's a very specific example I have a lot of thoughts about. Um, one being, and, and Pullman has talked very openly about the fact that the sort of voice, and it's funny because actually a couple very astute and powerful readers compared what I was doing in my first book, Peter Nimble, with what Philip Pullman was doing, which surprised me because tonally they're quite different books. And also pointed out Pullman is very openly talks about what he does, how what he was doing with his narrative voice is similar to what James Barry was doing in Peter Pan. Oh, and that right was very interesting alley. to me. Oh, this is right up my alley. I really, really have spent a lot of time with Peter Pan. I think it's a slightly racist but otherwise perfect text. Um, and um, <laughs> So you think racism this, is perfect. That's what you're saying. Well, way to go for the low-hanging fruit, Matt. Uh, <laughs> Area children's author. Um, but – I would argue if I'm going to counter that because I think everything you're saying is true, James, except I would point again, point out once again that in most of those examples, there's still a scene break. And even if it's technically the location is maintaining, I think the energy of a scene is shifting. You know, if a scene is sort of about one moment of change, even if the location maintains, there's this new shift. We have the energy to go to a new space because we can put that other person on pause. The examples that Matt talks about in, her, in his post are the opposite of that. It's literally like 
it's 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 crammed in there right between you know while we're supposed to be tracking someone it's like oh ps this thing and then back to that Mm -hmm. and and people get away with it here's the thing i would argue in the example you're making with pullman and going back to barry that the point of view of those books is not ever lyra it is not ever the witches it is no one but the narrator and the narrator being as powerful as she he is has the right and opportunity to head hop as much as he or she wants. And Pullman talks about this in relation to Barry and talks about the, the uh, it's almost like, I think he uses the term like a pixie or a sprite who literally can visit the heads of different characters. The reason it works is because he's never breaking POV. The POV is always this uh, voiced and identified or identifiable personality that is the narrator. Here's why I side with Matt on a fundamental gut level. As an artist, here's what I hear. When I see stories where writers are breaking POV, and this has been in my own experience as someone who broke POV liberally in my first book and then reined it in for subsequent books, and the response to my prose has been incredibly positive. People have identified me as getting much, much better as a prose writer with every single book, and specifically, the only thing I've worked on is maintaining control over pov within scenes that is really like the only thing i like deliberately went after um and 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 the reader response has been very very uh, unambiguous that that's been a positive change they call that better writing so i have to hold on to that i have to believe that that means something but the other piece of it is i know myself as a writer and i know because uh, i i'm part of a writing group and 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 they are incredibly vigilant and there's one woman in particular named Sally who is the bane of my existence because if I have the slightest misstep on POV, I can like hear the intake of her breath <laughs> as uh, the chapter is being read aloud, and I'm like, damn it. And and every time she tells me I break POV, I write her off, and then I come back to the note, which is what we do, right? We get sensitive at first. That's always and- the best notes are the notes that you just totally reject the first time you hear them, and then like a month later, you're like, damn it. Yeah. And I've just learned to kind of accept that. But the piece with that, and this is what I know about myself, you want to talk about protecting the artist. I know that in those instances, often when I break POV, it's because I wanted to do something cute, something that pleased me. And I was very much creating a darling. And I know if I get, usually, and and sometimes I still break POV, so I'm not saying every time, but most of the time, if I get down to brass tacks and I go, is this for me or is this for the reader? Most of the time, those little flourishes were for me. And I can just know I'm clever in the privacy of my own life. I don't need to know I'm clever within my book. Because my book is about my characters. And every time I move away from them to be clever, I think I'm being dismissive to my characters. And I'm a firm characters first person. That's the way I approach storytelling. And I believe that I my job is to eradicate my will in the face of what I think these characters need to have happen to them and need to do. Yeah. And that's not the way everyone writes, and I get that. For me, what's important, and this is because my background is dramatic writing, right? Um, so I'm coming from theater, and I'm from soup to nuts. The way I approach storytelling comes from that background, which means I think in scenes. That means I think in basically surveillance footage, right? Like as I'm writing, I, I'm not. I don't enjoy summary. I don't enjoy like characters' minds going off in a million directions. And I know there's beautiful writing. Writing I enjoy as a reader that does that. But but when I'm thinking of the craft of it, I am very aggressive about like who's in the room and what are they physically doing that's observable on the surveillance camera. Right. Um, which which lends itself to screenwriting is something that a lot of really strong fiction writers desperately need. I know a lot of very good writers who I feel like 
with a little bit more awareness of that would be turning out books that are not just good or dazzling in moments, but actually phenomenal, which isn't to say I'm doing that with my own writing, but I, it's, it's, and I think, and I suspect Matt similarly coming from a, a dramatic writing background, really where you, your angst is coming from is like, you're so close. Like if you just had these couple things, you would be doing something that would just be astonishing. But we've created a culture and an attitude about what a, an author is that you won't hear it. And that's heartbreaking because you're so close and it could be just so special if you would just hear. Right. I um, mean, I find that, you know, that you've got to be able to you've got to be able to write good surveillance camera writing no matter what sort of writer you are, you've got to be able to say, you know, create a great scene out of dialogue. And however, you know, James has accused me of trying to give novelists advice from a screenwriter's point of view and maybe trying to turn novelists into screenwriters. I actually spend a lot of time doing the opposite. I find that these days people are really holding themselves too much to screenwriter rules. And I spend a lot of time when I read people's novels going like, you're not a screenwriter. You're allowed to tell us what he's thinking. You know, they'll have, they'll go to extreme lengths oh, yeah. to show what the character is thinking through behavior or through, you know, even the she worst of all possible. She looked at herself in the mirror. Oh. She yeah. wasn't as young as she used to yeah. be. <laughs> the corners <laughs> of his mouth curved upward. I'm like, he smiled. I'm, it's I really... like, I'm like, you're a novelist. You can um, tell us how he thinks and feels. You, you, you have this wonderful gift that screenwriters lack and yet you're holding yourself to screenwriter rules. Just go ahead and tell us, uh, let us into the person's head, which uh, I find that is uh, advice I actually have to give novelists quite a bit. I, we were talking about like pruning it back. Let me get clear on what you're saying about characters and not being precious about things and not doing things because you think they're clever. Have you heard of? The, I remember. I, I, um, you know this critic, uh, book critic for the New Yorker named James Wood, mm-hmm. um, and he has a he has a book called How Fiction Works, which I think is good. But he has a better book called, I think it's called The Irresponsible Self or something like that. And it's about the idea of an author should be irresponsible in certain ways or allow the story to be irresponsible. And I'm, I'm going to kind of mangle his advice, but it's kind of like there, there's these points in which the character is just being themselves and it kind of has nothing to do with the story. And it kind of it might seem indulgent, but that is actually the point of the story that that is like why it is there it gives the story that thingness and it's it's not just like well i gotta get from plot point a to b and so i have to line up x y and z and anything else is self-indulgence and maybe i'm misinterpreting what i'm hearing but that's what it's sounding like to me you were getting into some elmore leonardisms um and and not into kind of like this idea of letting characters be irresponsible and do and be things that have nothing to do with the book uh, and yet are, are super valuable and they're the things that you remember afterwards. Actually, David Lynch, he has this idea called the eye of the duck in which there are certain scenes in a movie that don't carry any weight uh, story-wise. It could be excised very easily. As Matt would say, they come right out. But he says, they're the eye of the duck because, you know, the eye of a duck, you can't put it on the wing and you can't put it on its foot. It's got to go right there where its eye goes is the way that he explains it. And it, it, it makes perfect sense that he identified like the eye of the duck scenes in as many movies. And I realized, yeah, all those scenes could easily come out or be thought of as self-indulgent and all of those movies would be so much poorer if those scenes were not in there. Well, I think, I, and you know, this is, this is a, a thesis I didn't mean to hijack the conversation with, 
I mean, I would argue, and I have not read the James Wood book, and I really would like to, and I really, really love the excerpt that you cited in the blog post talking about POV. I thought that was, because I think POV is actually not something people are talking about seriously enough. Writers are not talking about seriously enough. And I say this as someone who basically was getting POV notes from very experienced writers for years, and I literally didn't understand what they were saying. And it's still, it's taken me several books and years to understand how little I under, how, I know about. Um, they were just talking about you, you have some breaks with POV here, and it's it's creating problems. And sometimes they'd identify the sentence, and I'm like, that doesn't break POV. And it, like a year later, I'd be like, oh, I see how. And it's very, very kind of subtle, kind of brush strokes ways. They were they were being very sensitive readers. But going on to your question about kind of the, the thing I threw out about the idea of, of kind of being subservient, subservient to characters. When I say subservient to characters and what they need, that is not being subservient to plot. When I'm talking about being subservient to character, it's it's putting your will out. It's, it's basically just abdicating your will um, in the face of, I mean, if you really believe you're, cre- and I believe I'm creating real people, um, and that can be awkward. Like, I've, I've known and loved some of my characters longer than my own children. They're real to me, you know, not to sound like P.L. Travers or something, but they, they, they have lives, and my job was to let them have those lives. I had an idea of what their story was, and at every turn, what the hard work of writing was, was not letting myself do what I wanted to do. It's just like parenting, right? You guys have kids. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not I'm not fighting you on that element, but I think the stuff, I mean, again, and, and like I said, I mean, uh, I, I'm hot and cold on David Lynch. I Sometimes I think he's really just astonishing. Uh, but the times that I've really struggled with him, I'm not seeing him do that. I'm seeing him do stuff that feels like uh, a conversation he's having with himself about himself that has nothing to do with it feels like he's not living up to the responsibility of creating human beings and putting them in a story and and that happens all sorts of writers and storytellers do that all the time i don't mean to pick on david lynch because goodness knows he's kind of a, a you know a once in a generation talent i don't think it and more importantly maybe this is where i'm coming from i don't think it's a way to teach writing mm-hmm. i think that, i think that's a way to teach thin-skinned precious uh little uh, artists who can't take a note and I firmly believe that the most important thing that any creator needs is the ability to take a note with the wisdom to discard stuff sometimes mm-hmm. but only after they've seriously considered it I guess you know, the, the real geniuses aren't going to listen to anybody they don't, they're not going to care yeah, I, don't <laughs> no, think, I, I, I firmly disagree with that I, I firmly think... disagree with that the real wasted talents don't listen to anyone I don't care. I think there's many different kinds of genius. I think you have people on both ends who don't listen to anybody. I think that you have people who think their geniuses are completely wrong who don't listen to anybody. But I think you also have genuine – I think that that if we were to have a special call-in guest right now from James Choice or William Faulkner, I think that they would not be at all intimidated by any of (laughs) my advice. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, They wouldn't give a shit. They they, they would just say, well, you know, I'm going to continue to excrete the art that I excrete. And you're going to deal with it. Like, uh, Proust, like, uh, some people find him unreadable and talk about somebody who's in conversation with himself, but I find him utterly compelling, and many other people do too. A lot of people hate him. I think Proust is incredible. Uh, um, and I think it's precisely because he indulges himself to the nth degree. And and I think, like, art is fundamentally a, a crafted self-indulgence. And I think if you don't embrace that on some level, then you are simply making a product. I disagree so profoundly with that last statement, which isn't to disagree with the quality of Proust, who, you know, I have not gotten through. (laughs) Me neither. Uh, I think I got through, like, Swan's Way. And I could not even get through the movie adaptation, which was only two hours. (laughs) Um, 
but I mean, I, I'm kind of creatively just in my DNA. I'm a very kind of flamboyant person. I have very big ideas. I have a huge kind of artistic ego, like straight out of the, you know, out, out of the box as a little kid. Like I just, I was that person. And all I know is the only reason I am creating today is because I had people, other artists in my life, including my mother who's a painter, identify those traits in me and understand that they were toxic to the actual work of creating something meaningful. So maybe it's different with each kind of person, but for I wish me, I, I wish I had your mother. <laughs> she's she's amazing, and uh, and and it was very. She was very. She was not like this with the other kids because I was the kind of the more at an early age creatively inclined. You were special, you John. <laughs> I was special. Well, and she spent, but it was special the way like I, I'm thinking of like uh, the the adoptive father in Dexter. Um, <laughs> you was, were the chosen one, Jonathan. It was like you could possibly be the most obnoxious person I've ever met, and we we're going to work very hard to stop that from happening. Um, but that sort of, that sort of discipline has been instrumental. And frankly, I, you know, I think of when we were all at that peak, you know, I, I use the word flamboyance, which isn't quite the right word, but you know, we were that peak, uh, enthusiasm and confidence. That's when we were creating the work in high school. And, and it's a very rare and perhaps delusional person who goes back to, and sees their first creations in high school and thinks, damn, I was good. Like but some people are. Some people, you know, are, you know, there is, there is always the yeah, J.K. The Rowling. But the high school geniuses were S.E. Hinton, who I don't think was that person, right? <laughs> like, right. like, and also, I mean, even like Jane Austen's Juvenalia is unreadable, having read it all. It's I, I'm not trying to defend Juvenalia. Uh, that, that's not my point of view here. That's what I, I just think when I That's go, where we've, we've pushed you into that. We're, we're trying to force I, you into that corner. Yeah, I know. This is like an untenable position that you're painting in. What I'm saying is I go to art to bask in crafted idiosyncrasy. Crafted mm-hmm. idiosyncrasy. The mm-hmm. idiosyncrasy. The, I, I need to have the whatness of that author, and that only comes through radical self-indulgence. Well, we might be de- defining self-indulgence differently, uh, which could be the because I certainly the the whole point of I mean, art to me is expression, and and I'm I uh, look I get tied up in knots with all collaborative artworks because I fundamentally desperately want an authorial voice that I feel like I'm communing with as a as a reader or consumer, um, and which very much is in line with what you're talking about. Like I want to hear a personality, and the most charismatic storytellers I know are the ones who that, for whom that personality. I think like Stephen King and Ray Bradbury and C.S. Lewis and Neil Gaiman, part of the reason that these people get like disciples who are putting tattoos of their words on their bodies is because there's a personality coming through and we feel Absolutely. like we're that's, that's meeting what I was with trying someone. To say. Yeah. And I agree with that. But also, and maybe this is the difference, in those examples, the person who's shining through is not is a gracious and fascinating person and not a self-involved blowhard who loves every little thing about themselves. Okay, so I mean... And there's a humility to them that I'm very... I think that charisma is very closely related to a humility, which feels, and I'm sure it's more complicated than this, but it feels like that is at odds with the person who some of uh, your language is painting or conjuring in my mind. Uh And that could be my own bias. Um, I mean, when you're naturally charismatic, I mean, I, 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 I can understand your problem. You need to hide as much of yourself as possible, Jonathan, from the world. Uh, 
he, he, when you're a monster like me. You're constantly trying to efface yourself from the work, <laughs> and I'm saying the work is... So, okay, so I'm in the middle of, re, of reading the Narnia books to my girls. Mm-hmm. Talk about somebody who lets every single one of his fears, peccadilloes, weirdnesses, obsessions hang out mm-hmm. in a completely undisciplined way as C.S. Lewis. And Even also Tolkien someone who is, was like, what the hell are you doing, Jack? Like, like, and and also <laughs> someone who is totally willing to put his thumb on the scales and be didactic and hide his true agenda. And utterly compelling I, for that because it is utterly that he would not have been able to write with such fire and force unless he had been motivated in that way. And when Aslan says, you will know me by another name in your world, and my daughter says, what is his name? And I go, I'm not going to tell you. I think it's like it has all the more force for that. Uh, um, the, I, I don't think uh, the, somebody with... Uh, polite and and uh, and well and, and all the correct ideas necessarily even can write a very compelling piece of fiction. You have to be a weirdo and you have to indulge that weirdness and not sand off all the edges and become boring and write an Elmore Leonard novel. What's the matter with Elmore Leonard? Elmore Leonard's a great novelist. <laughs> boring heists. I hate heists. I hate boring heists and people double-crossing each other. Elmore Leonard boring. has a lot of personality. Elmore Leonard is not a good example of writing without personality. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm taking the very highest of what that kind of writing is capable of. I see. I, I agree with everything you're saying, James. And fundamentally, generally speaking, when you guys are arguing, I'm more on James's side. What? Because I'm, and Matt and I have talked about this consistently when I was looking at drafts of his book and talking blogs over the years. Like, I am very sensitive to anything that feels fundamentally poisonous to the creative process. That's my whole bias. Is like, And I'm going my own experience, but I'm like, I have a series of like alarm systems set up when I'm hearing something that's going to lead to less writing or worse writing. And that's, that is my entire guide. And in this one instance, generally speaking, I like how you sort of protect the actual, like, on boots on the ground, I'm making something. Here's, what, here's how what you're saying might deter or inhibit the creation thing that James, and James is very quick with that. Though I will say, I'm just gonna snipe on probably the first podcast, second podcast, you guys are talking about dialogue, and you guys got in a phenomenal argument that I've had with almost every person I've ever known, in which I'm basically saying everything Matt says about the fact that I think dialogue is combative, um, and you do not believe that, James, but for the fact that you are probably the most combative conversationalist I've ever met in person. Um, I've never met anyone who so effortlessly will make sure he wins every exchange. Um, uh, And you're spectacular at it, but it was just humorous to me to hear I don't like to read it. I don't like to read it because I process it as competition. Fair enough. But you're very good. I'm just saying you're wired for it in a way that uh, I envy. But so all this is really coming down to, I think, you know, on this topic of like POV, I, I don't even love the kill your darlings language. But I think the reason I don't love it is because we're not actually teaching people how to know what their actual darlings are. You should be so lucky as to have a darling. Um, that's a little bit the attitude I have. And, and honestly, like this is quite seriously, like as I write books, I often stop like, you know, two thirds of the way through and scrap every, I'm a big page one rewriter, much to the dismay of my editor. Um, <laughs> who wants to kill herself when I say everything you've read is gone. Um, And that's because I am often chasing a very gut thing about like, this came out of a a very emotional place and I've gotten away from that with my conceit. Mm. Um, And I'm a big, a big advocate for throwing everything away to get back to that 
to that little germ. Well, I, mean, well, I, I think oh, that one of the things I've tried to do in my book is to let people know that, is to let people know, here's the rule that you're breaking. Here is the expectation that people have that they may not even know they have and that you may not know that they have. But I'm going to try to help you see that this is the expectation that people have and that you are fulfilling or not fulfilling and then try to give you the tools to do that. I th that's a big part of what I'm trying to do is not to say, oh, here's this rule, never break it. It's to say you need to be aware of where you are and what you're doing and what what people want you to do, what people subconsciously want you to do. And then once you know that, then you will have the tools you need to go off in a radical new direction to do radical new things. I get that. And I, I think you're right to say that. And I think those that set of expectations is different in a novel than it is in a movie. It is. I think you can get away with a lot more in a novel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Are we ending the podcast now? I think I'm going to continue on with James, and we're going to do the end bit of the podcast where I pitch him a story idea. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, but we do not need to have you here for that. Wait, wait um, does he want to be there for that? Maybe he wants to be around. He's got, he's got to get up at 5 oh, a.m. Okay, just give him the opportunity. Just to go. We're shutting the door and we're going to do something interesting. Like, we're going to have fun without you. Of, like, like civility just to give him the opportunity to like, like, like politely decline. So is this where I politely decline? This is where you politely decline. Okay. Good luck. Enjoy your pitch. You know, I think uh, 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 Jonathan brought a lot of civility and a lot of complimenting. We, we should compliment each other more. You notice how you compliment us all the time? I like, know. It was great. Yeah. Well, uh, guys, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. And I like what you guys do. Cheers. Thank you so much, Bye. Jonathan. Talk to you soon. Okay. We ended our Skype call with Jonathan. What we do traditionally for the last bit of the show, which <laughs> is... Traditionally, at this point, we're on episode five. I think we have traditions at this point. We are a society of, of traditions and values, and we don't want to break those. And what we do is you pitch the idea, and then the other person tries to help you fix the idea or help you realize why you haven't pursued this well, idea. We explore it. We talk it out. We, we support each other. We think about it. We look at it from different angles. Explore it and decide if you really want to give it away. That's the goal, is we get to the end and we decide, okay, now that I've helped you work out this idea, do you really want to give it away? And we sort of got to the point with James's idea in episode four where he wasn't exactly sure he did want to give it away. So in the first episode, I definitively gave the idea away, and as it and turned out, it. and then turned out James took it, and my, my niece took it, and I'm going to get now, finally, here in episode five, give away my second idea, and we'll see how this one goes. This is an idea I've had for a long time. This is an idea I've been sitting on since high school. I actually have... Best kind. I actually probably have notepads from high school where I was, you know, still writing longhand on notepads and, and jotting down ideas. And I remember at one point I would go to a coffee house where they had uh, singer-songwriters would play. And at one point I was there and, you know, I consider myself very much a pseudo-intellectual in high school and would, I didn't consider myself, I considered myself an intellectual. I now consider myself to have been a pseudo-intellectual. And I would, you know, sit in the coffee house and try to write f serious fiction. And at one point, the singer-songwriter who I had a huge crush on was looking for a place to sit down and sat with me and said, what are you writing? Oh, are you a writer? And it was a huge moment for me, huge moment of validation for Teenage Mepper to have this uh, incredibly attractive singer-songwriter. Her name was Natalie Farr. I don't know where you are today, Natalie Farr, but you were a great singer-songwriter. Who would be so great if you said, that woman was Natalie Imbruglia. That woman was Natalie Imbruglia. <laughs> that woman was Fiona Apple. <laughs> In which case, with Natalie Imbruglia, we would once again be asking, where are you today, Natalie Imbruglia? So let's go ahead and have me pitch the idea and then have James react. 
Okay, so here's the idea. It's a musical. It would. It could be a stage musical. It could be a film musical. I already like it. There you go. It's so we begin with two guys are sitting around. It's movie night, and one of them is like, "Oh, I brought my favorite movie for you to watch. It's West Side Story." And the other one's like, "No, I refuse. I refuse to watch West Side Story. I hate musicals." It's like going, "Oh, why do you hate musicals?" And the guy lists all the reasons why he hates musicals, and he just doesn't buy it. He doesn't buy that people would spontaneously burst into song every time it happens. He's totally thrown out of it. He uh, has no suspension of disbelief. There's no way. It goes on a long rant to announcing all musicals. And then his friend is like, all right, well, you know, I think you're wrong, but okay. And then the next morning, the guy who hates musicals wakes up, and his life has become a musical. And as soon as he goes out on the street, everybody does a huge dance number on the street, huge song and dance number, and then they all turn to him, and they expect him to sing the final verse, which he cannot do. He realizes that he is now in a musical, and everybody but him has the ability to, to sing and dance spontaneously, and yet he is still his old self and is in living hell, his idea of living hell. And he has to somehow get through his day. And on the commute, people burst out into sing and dance. When he gets to work, people break out into song and dance. And he is desperately trying to stop these songs, desperately trying to stop this from happening. And at one point, he realizes that the only way he can stop it is he has to have an orange on him at all times. Because he's constantly saying, like, oh, won't you please stop singing? And they'll say, but can't you hear the bells are ringing? And no matter what he says, they'll turn it into a rhyme. So then he'll have to say, do you want an orange? And then they can't rhyme anything with orange, and that stops the song. So eventually he realizes that's not going to work forever. And the only thing he can do is get to the end of the musical he is in. So he realizes that, that means he has to do everything that happens in a musical. And he has to get the girl. He always has had a crush on the girl who works in the cubicle next to him. Uh, she is has an unrequited crush on their evil boss. He has to win her over to his good side. He has to do everything that happens in a story. So he comes up. This was sort of presaging the eventual writing of, the, of my book. He comes up with a list of everything that happens in a story. And it's like he says, well, according to Chekhov, if you've got a gun on the mantelpiece in the first act, it has to go off in the third act. So everybody think back. Have we seen any guns on mantelpieces yet? And someone's like, yes, there was a gun on the mantelpiece. And they're like, all right, we need to make sure that gun goes off because we're not going to be able to get to the end of the story unless that happens. And once they do all that, finally... Uh, the musical ends, and of course he finds his own song. He finds that it can't really end until he gains the ability to sing from the heart himself and win the win the girl that way. And of course, as in Groundhog Day, by the time the musical finally ends, he wishes it could never end, and he wishes life was all a musical. So that's my story. That's my pitch. I James was furiously taking notes while I did this. You may have heard the scratch of his pen. Um, okay, so this is... Um uh, I, I like this idea because... It, but it's also very much of the time of like when forms were interrogating themselves in the oh, 90s very much. Yeah. like scary movie yeah uh, um and also self-consciously taking up some trope like the way buffy would have like we're gonna do a musical episode which is not so original with buffy they did it with moonlighting too right uh, um it, it so like it, it is a kind of like a time it, it's like of its time and i don't know if it could be resuscitated now but i wonder how could it work now I love musicals, so I want to find a way to make this work. So the orange, so you physicalized his way of resisting it in this yes. orange. Although porridge rhymes with orange, I've always said. <laughs> I, I don't understand this idea that nothing rhymes with orange. Although maybe his love interest is the one who actually has the rhyme for orange. <laughs> porridge! And they can have a wonderful song, which like he sings about orange, and she sings about porridge. He's finally found his, his other half, the person who can rhyme orange. 
Yeah, or, or the or, or I mean, porridge is not like a, a straight rhyme, but it's a slant rhyme. Right. Maybe the idea of slant rhymes is something he comes to accept. Maybe he's somebody he's a bit too straight laced and, and like rules bound, and he has it. to be able to like accept the idea of a slant rhyme. Which like all the best rhymes are slant rhymes. If you like listen to like, I mean, uh, I know that Hamilton is not not the coolest thing to say is great now. However, like when you listen to it, there's a lot of things that are like forced and slant rhymes in it, and that's when it's its most adventurous yes, and interesting. Basically, what are these songs going to sound like? Are they going to be like old classic Hollywood musical songs? Are they going to be like Oklahoma? Or are they going to be like Hamilton? Or are they going to be like... like what, what are they going to sound like, these songs? I, you know, I was picturing West Side Story. West Side Story is my favorite musical, and I think is sort of the ultimate exemplar of this sort of idea of people living a normal, everyday life and then bursting out into song, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, sort of the classic musical where people, where there's somewhat some sort of staginess involved. Like, there's no staginess involved in West Side Story. They're mm-hmm. not... I think what you need to do is you need to really love musicals to write this. Do you love musicals? I do. Oh, yeah. I love musicals. But I don't know how to write them. I mean, the real reason I never did this is, is I realized, like, okay, I would have to not just... Right, you can't just write the book of a musical and have someone else write the music and lyrics. Like you know, uh, you have to. Work you have to. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. But you find know, a Sullivan. You, Step one: yes, find a Sullivan. Find a Sullivan. <laughs> I realized that until I found a Sullivan, I cannot go forward with this, which is the real reason I never did it, and the real reason why I'm definitely giving this one away today, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because I uh, I sort of put this one in my back pocket until I found a musical collaborator who I never found. So I mean, you're you're helping me with the idea. You're you're pointing out how it could be made to work today. You know, do you ultimately feel like I should give this idea away? Do you feel like, you know, are you going to try to keep me from giving this idea away? Or do you want to, or do you want to, do you want to intervene in that process? I think you don't like this idea. I love this idea. I love this idea. You love this idea because you love your old self, but like you have not been presenting this from a place of love, I don't feel. No. No, I you mean, not, they say, you know, say, I'm so excited about I could do this, I could do that. Like, when no. I've given the least push on any one thing, you're like, well, it's just the bad guy. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not something that you're like, if you're not committed to it, if that's something that you're burning to write, then yeah, give it away. It's valueless. In fact, it's worse than valueless. It's something that's going to get in your way. It needs to go. Someone needs to, someone else needs to pick up this idea. It's a uh, dear audience, dear podcast listener. I would love it if somebody were to make this idea. I would love it if there is some... Matt is calling out to that singer-songwriter right now. If there is some... Natalie, if you're out there. Natalie Farr, if you're out there. He's got a wife. All right, so I think that... I think we've got a good idea. I think we've tossed a good idea out there. But we have to wrap up this podcast eventually. I think we had a wonderful conversation with Jonathan Oxier. Yep. I think we have, we've had a good little button here on the end. I think we've uh, we've got an excellent episode. So, James, I guess we're going to reconvene here soon to do episode number six. Yep. You're going to have a new idea to pitch? Sure, yeah, I'll think of something. Okay, so that's good. All right, well, everybody, thanks for listening. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Again, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this has been the Secrets of Story podcast. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hand and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.